Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Tuesday, July 26, 2022. And today will be better than yesterday. Producing from his home studio in the foothills of Connecticut is Taylor Schwink. I'm Buster Only, working from my home in New York. Sarah Abbott is working under the weather today. Sarah, hang in there, okay? Yeah, you know, sometimes you just get regular sick, as it turns out. And today is one of those days. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, I feel like today, Taylor, this is what distinguished uh, someone like Cal Ripken. That's what we're seeing with Sarah today, right? You show up every day and you do the work. The Iron Woman. I've always called her that since we met back in December of uh, 2021. (laughs) That is what I'm known for. (laughs) Speaking of Hall of Famers, we've got a Hall of Famer joining the podcast today. A fun conversation coming up with Tim Kirkchin, who, of course, was honored in Cooperstown over the weekend. I'm sure that he's got major uh, hangover from all the kudos and awards and conversations and everything that's been going on. And I can't wait to debrief him. It's going to be a lot of fun and, and ask him about how he got through a lot of his speech without breaking down and crying. But on the front burner, a lot of conversations about the trade deadline and a lot of conversations about the evolving wildcard race in the American League. The Red Sox had a terrible week coming off the all-star break in their first five games, or the most recent five games, going into uh, play the other day, they had a minus 54 run differential over the course of five games, the worst for any team since 1899. But you know what? On Monday, they had a good day. Bogart's a big lead. He's running. The pitch is swung on and looped into shallow center field. Racing in his straw. He will not get it. Coming home to score is Verdugo. Over to third goes Bogart's. It's a bloop RBI hit for Vasquez. 3-1 Red Sox. And that would be the final score. That sound from WEI 93.7 FM. And so when you look at the American League standings, you've got uh, – the Rays and the Jays and the Mariners running one, two, and three, not necessarily in that order, in the wild card race. And then you have a group of four teams that are three, four games behind them. It's people around baseball wondering if the Red Sox are going to be buyers or sellers. We'll talk about that with Tim coming up. The Padres also going for a wild card spot. They faced the Tigers, and it was not a good day. Mackenzie Gore had to leave that game because of elbow soreness, and that might have an impact. On the conversation around Juan Soto, we'll be talking about that with Tim. And the Tigers had a good day at the plate. The 3-2, swinging a fly ball, left field. This one's deep, way back and gone. Jamer Candelario put a charge into it. Number eight, a no-doubter. And the Tigers take a 6-1 lead here in the fourth. Fly ball, left field off the bat of Candelario. This one's deep. Going back, Profar looking up, and it's gone! A home run! Two-homer night for Jamer Candelario. His ninth of the year, 11-4 Tigers here in the fifth. That call from Dan Dickerson of the Tigers Radio Network. Detroit wins 12-4. Major League Baseball and the Major League Baseball Player Association could not agree on an international draft system. Shocker. The two sides not being able to agree. That means that we'll continue to see the system of qualifying offers for free agents that began in 2012. Since the last time we were on, the Yankees officially placed veteran reliever Michael King on the 60-day injured list because of a fractured elbow. Uh, That 
is an important development as we get closer to the trade deadline. And by the way, on Wednesday nights on ESPN, we're going to have the Mets and Yankees. The first time these two have ever played when they both lead their divisions outright, Max Scherzer is going to be on the mound for the Mets, and that'll be a lot of fun. Hot Ticket is brought to you by Vivid Seats, where you earn rewards with every purchase. Vivid Seats Rewards is your ticket to more tickets. Vivid Seats, life happens live. Speaking of the American League wildcard race, the Tampa Bay Rays have lost two of their four stars, center fielder Kevin Kiermeyer, catcher Mike Zanino, for the rest of the season with injuries. Kevin Cash, the Rays manager, told media about this going into Monday's game against the Orioles, which did not go well for Tampa Bay. Brian's last hit was on Sunday against Corey Kluber. And there it is! Right center field and down, and Mullen's got a great jump. He's going to try to make it two on the play. He is safe! What a dive that was! Mullins practically flew 90 feet in the air to get in past the tag of Mejia. And two-run score on the Mount Castle hit. And the Orioles win that game 5-1. to one. The Braves are trying to catch the New York Mets in the National League East. They've been red hot since June 1st. And they had a lead against the Phillies on Monday. But then the Phillies came back. 0-1. And a swing and a looper into left. That'll drop for a base hit. Veerling coming around third. He's going to come home and score. And JT Romuto comes through. And he has tied this game up with an RBI single here in the bottom of the third. It's 3-3. Scott Fransky, Sports Radio 94 WIP. The Braves would take a 4-3 to lead, but in the bottom of the eighth inning, one of the Phillies got a huge hit. Minter has the sign. He's ready. He kicks. Runners off. The pitch. Swung on. Hit deep right field. Acuna going back. Track. Wall. It's gone. Bryson Stott turns it around with a three-run home run here in the bottom of the eighth inning, and the Phillies take a 6-4 to lead. And that would be the final score. And I got a text, my son, the Braves fan, on Bitter Boulevard after that loss, loss last night. The New York Mets, we mentioned before, they're going to be facing the Yankees starting on Tuesday in a two-game series. And ace Jacob deGrom is set for a AAA rehab start on Wednesday night. We'll be giving updates during the course of the broadcast, I'm sure. And the question within the Mets organization is, will he need one more minor league rehab start before returning to the big leagues? Taylor, what else you got? Buster, the listeners out there, they should continue listening for our conversation with Tim Kirkshin, but you should also watch it on ESPN's YouTube page. You can uh, you know, see Tim in the afterglow of his weekend and Buster genuflecting at the altar of Tim Kirkshin, which everyone seemed to have done this weekend. Uh, a couple things to promote. ESPN, in partnership with Peyton Manning's Omaha Productions, presents Soup with Coop. Really excited about this one. Cooper Manning invites players and coaches from across sports to share stories and laughs while enjoying a bowl of his guests' favorite soup. When the soup is finished, the conversation ends. That Soup with Coop. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And the captain marches on. He was the face of the New York Yankees, a five-time World Series champion, the most popular and admired player in baseball, and one of the great sports superstars of any age. The captain tells the story of Derek Jeter's life and Hall of Fame career anchored by exclusive, extensive, unprecedentedly candid interviews with Jeter along with his family and dozens of teammates, rivals, and observers. Catch episode three on Thursday, July 29th at 9 p.m. Eastern on ESPN and streaming on on ESPN Plus. You can now stream the most Major League Baseball games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. 
Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your Major League Baseball games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECT-TV or visit directtv.com. That's D-I-R-E-C-T-V.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip codes and requires choice package. Hot Ticket is brought to you by Vivid Seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN. Get great deals and the hottest tickets. Experience it live. Seam heads rejoice. This is Timmy time. Baseball is the greatest game. With Tim Kirkshire. It never disappoints you. On Baseball Tonight. Tim Kirkshire covers baseball for ESPN. But Tim, I think moving forward, we have to change that intro. Because you're a Hall of Famer. Congratulations. (laughs) Well, thank you, Buster. That was the most overpowering overwhelming, unforgettable weekend of my life. Uh, That was the greatest weekend of my life uh, professionally by far. And just to give you an idea and not dropping names, but this is how it works on weekends like this. And someday soon, Buster, you'll have the same day. But I'm sitting on the bus driving from the hotel over to uh, the ceremony and guy comes up to me on the bus and says, can I sit next to you? And it was Sandy Koufax. So I sat next to Sandy Koufax and talked to him for 15 minutes, just him and I. And as you know, Buster, he was a great basketball player. Um, So since I love basketball also, I figured this would be the best way to start a conversation with him, even though I know him. Um, So he was showing me his really big hands and how long his arms are and explained that's why he could dunk it at age. I mean, at uh, when he was only six feet tall and everything like that. So that's just another, a a little snippet of how the weekend went. You turn the corner and Hey, there's Johnny bench. Hey, there's Sandy Koufax. Hey, there's Paul Molitor. It was really, really cool. Yeah, and of course, Sandy Kovacs played at the University of Cincinnati. So you knew him ahead of time? Tell me about that. Yeah, yeah, I, I've talked to him several times. I've interviewed him several times. but And, you know, I just felt like it, this wasn't the time to ask him about that great curveball he threw or, you know, going 97 and 27 his last four years. I thought he might be more interested in talking about something else. So we talked about basketball and the NBA and everything else. It was it was great. And, you know, earlier in the day, of course, I, I talked to Johnny Bench, which I did quite a bit. Real quickly, Buster, he at the party on Friday night, Johnny Bench walks near my table where all my family is. And I say, Johnny, could you come over and, and meet my brothers and all that? And he goes, sure. He said, let's get some pictures. So I assume that meant that we were going to gather around him and have somebody take our picture with Johnny Bench. Instead, he pulled out his own camera and started taking pictures of my entire family. There's Johnny Bench, the photographer, taking pictures of my family. And then we said, Johnny, look, we need a picture with you. You're the greatest catcher ever. And he gets in with us. He hands the camera to somebody else who takes the picture of us. And that person was Paul Molitor 
who got more hits than Willie Mays. And now Paul Molitor is taking pictures of Johnny Bench with my family. That was one of those moments where you just went, how could this be happening to me? So I think I saw that picture. We had a lot of our colleagues who had jumped into that picture at some point. Was that on Saturday that that uh, picture? Yeah, we had a big personal party on Saturday night, and Johnny Bench came to the personal party. And, you know, all my knucklehead friends are there, all my family's there, and here comes the greatest catcher of all time, and people were just huddled around him. He talked to everybody, so typical of him. It was absolutely amazing, and I should never tell you especially this, Buster, but at lunch on Sunday, Johnny Bencham sitting next to him. He takes out his Hall of Fame lanyard and says, I want you to sign this for me. So wow. I, I gave my signature on Johnny Bench's Hall of Fame lanyard, and then he looked at my signature and goes, what is that? That's the worst signature I've ever seen. He yelled at me. I deserved it because I have the worst signature anyone's ever seen. But still, Johnny Bench, the most playful, fun guy who makes the Hall of Fame all worthwhile. That was really, really special. So I'm going to keep torturing you on this uh, conversation. I want to ask you about, because, you know, you and I have known each other for 35 years or whatever the the time is, uh, that that had to have been difficult because you are accustomed through your work and your training for decades of not making yourself the story of not being in the middle of it. And yet over the weekend and, you know, the beginning of last week, you became the story. How did you cross over that Rubicon? And I ask that earnestly, I'm not trying to make fun of you, but that, that had to have been a difficult process for you. Yeah, that was one of the hardest things I've ever had to go through because this is not supposed to be about me. It's never been about me, and this weekend it was. What got me through it was Cooperstown got me through it. In other words, a bunch of my family and friends had never been to Cooperstown, which, of course, is this ludicrously charming town in upstate New York. So people went to the museum. They had never been there before. They had never walked down Main Street. They had never been to an induction ceremony. So I kept thinking, thank goodness this isn't entirely about me because these people have made, this is like a bucket list trip for some of these people. People. My son, Jeffrey, his father-in-law, just finished a trip in Cooperstown where he went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Football Hall of Fame, and then finished in the Baseball Hall of Fame. So it was way more than let's go watch Tim talk for 16 minutes. It was let's go visit a place we've never been before. And it was just breathtaking for them. And that that's what got me through because it, otherwise it was so, so difficult for me. So I can tell you this, like the conversation about this secret caravan going from Bristol up to Cooperstown to surprise you on Saturday. And I apologize, I wasn't there. I had a personal circumstance that I wasn't able to make that trip. But it was so cool, like all the arrangements that were made. Kelly Carrier, a great friend, works behind the scenes. Uh, Carl Ravitch talking about it. Phil Orleans talking about it. Uh, and I've heard you were completely shocked when that group of folks showed up. Yeah. And again, Buster, I just dropped you, you know, Johnny Bench, Sandy Koufax, Paul Molitor. But honest to God, the highlight of my entire weekend was going into a room for lunch. And I was just told we're going to go eat in here. And 20 people who were not supposed to be on that trip were in the room. And 
I started to cry again. It was so kind of them. They got in a, in a bus and drove three to four hours to come see me. We had lunch for an hour and a half. They got back in the bus and they went back. That was without a doubt the highlight of, of my entire weekend because my dear friends that I work with took that kind of time, made that kind of sacrifice just to come see me. It was, I cried like a baby and I'll do it after this podcast again. <laughs> so tell me about making that speech. Uh, you know, they were, uh, Carl and Eduardo were talking before Sunday at baseball about you practicing that speech a million times and almost trying to wash as much emotion out of it as you could. So you could get through the 15 minutes. Yeah, I, I probably did that out loud at least 200 times, at least, including five times on the morning that I delivered the speech. Um, I just chose not to look down at my notes. I wrote the speech. I memorized the speech. I did it 200 times in my head. I said it out loud. And then when I went to the podium, I was still terrified. Buster, I've never been that nervous or that scared doing anything in my entire life. And I just said, please, just words, please come to me like they did in all the times that I practiced. And fortunately, they did. I got emotional a couple times talking about my brother and my mother and father. It's impossible not to. All 200 times that I did that speech, even when I obviously just alone doing it, I cried every single time. And I cried when I made that speech, but I, and I kind of cried afterwards because I was just so relieved it was over because the stress and the pressure was just all self-imposed, but it was enormous. Well, and we're going to hear your whole speech coming up here in a minute and on the podcast. Uh, but I would say this again, I know you well enough to know that you had a phenomenal time over the weekend. And I bet you, as you guys were leaving Cooperstown, you were so relieved. <laughs> it, it, it was great. I remember driving in um, on Wednesday afternoon thinking, okay, finally, this, this is it. The, the week has come. But the time from Wednesday afternoon to Saturday afternoon, it seemed like it was three months because it just wouldn't come to the time where I, I, I could finish. And then after I finished the speech, then all the weight was lifted. And Sunday was just a spectacular day. Um at the at the ceremony watching those guys go in and then yes when we drove out uh yesterday morning um, there was this enormous sigh of relief that as much fun as i had the greatest professional weekend of my life uh, i was glad it was in the rearview mirror because i knew now i can now look forward to some other things because this has completely dominated my thinking since december 7th 2021 all right uh, so I, you don't have to talk about yourself anymore. I want you to talk about what you experienced on Sunday, uh, watching those speeches and a lot of, you know, David Ortiz and Jim Cott, Tony Leave and others being inducted to the Hall of Fame. What jumped out of you? Yeah, well, first off, Jim Cott was so eloquent. He was so good. He was a perfect leadoff man explaining, you know, the first time, you know, he went to a baseball game, Lefty Grove was pitching or he, Lefty Grove was his hero. It was unbelievable. And he said, I want to be one of those guys. And he made up his mind to do it. Tony Oliva was hysterically funny in part because he had broken English, which made it so, so good. I learned so much about Bud Fowler that I didn't know. I, I thought I knew Buck O'Neill pretty well. I learned so much about him. 
Uh, Gil Hodges's daughter made a tremendous speech and told me several things I was not aware of. And of course, David Ortiz was was great at the end. So I it was a very educational day for me. It was hot as it could be, but I I was totally comfortable just sitting there listening to those seven guys go in. It was absolutely spectacular. Well, and knowing you, you, you probably had a blanket on uh, along, uh, you know, even though it was 96, because you have a hard time keeping warm. Tell me about a personal moment you had with David Ortiz over the weekend. Um, well, I had, I had several of them. Um, I, I can tell this now, uh, and I'm not trying to <laughs> – I saw him at the All-Star game, and I said, uh, David, I'll, I'll see you in Cooperstown. And he goes, are, are you coming to see me? So <laughs> I'm not sure he realized that I was going there for another reason. <laughs> so when I got there, we had a big chuckle over that. It was funny. He gave me a big hug. You know, he weighs 150, 200 pounds more than me. And he was a complete rock star the entire time. And he picked up my brother's um, granddaughter and held her for a picture. So we have a picture of David Ortiz holding my great niece in his arms. And cause that's what he was doing the whole time. Shaking hands, kissing babies. It was tremendous. All right. Uh, as you know, a week from today, we'll be in Bristol. It'll be the trade deadline. That's going to be the focus for the next week. Uh, it's all around Juan Soto, and I know you were busy with events in Cooperstown. So I, I just want to, you know, I'll give you some of what I've learned in the last week. Uh, the Padres, to me, the most motivated team in the conversations uh, for Juan Soto. I think the Cardinals, uh, the Padres are the most motivated team. The Cardinals are the team probably most capable of making a deal because of the absolute volume of high-end, uh, you know, major league-ready players that they have. I look at the Mariners as being a sleeper because they have a chance to make the playoffs for the first time since 2001. And the conversation among executives that I speak with, they think it's, uh, you know, it probably breaks down to about 75, 40, or 25% in terms of who thinks Soto is going to go and who thinks this is about Mike Rizzo just gathering information. Uh, and I'll tell you this, it's really interesting, this particular uh, deal because it's being made by Mike Rizzo, the perception of how he makes trades is he targets very specific players in other organizations and really just keeps working on that team as opposed to casting a wide net and circling back and circling back and circling back with each of the teams and trying to goose the offers. And I think what everyone is wondering, what is Mike Rizzo thinking? So what's your guess as to where we are here? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm with you on the Padres. To me, they have the biggest need. And just imagine, as we've talked about, trading for Soto, Tatis Jr. comes back. Those three, with, with Manny Machado, hit one, two, three for the rest of the year. I'm on the 75% group that I think he's going to get traded in the next week. I don't know how it's going to happen because it's going to be a mega deal of all mega deals. But obviously, if you trade for him now, you can get him for this postseason and the next and the next. I would think you could get more for him right now than you could after the season, like at the winter meetings or before next season or certainly this time next year. But so I think... I'm guessing, of course, I think he's going to get dealt before Tuesday for that reason, that Mike Rizzo, who's very smart and very shrewd, will look and say, all right, I might not get this spectacular deal a year from now. I'm going to do it now. 
And I think the biggest clue that we can draw upon and the question of whether or not he's going to be traded or not is based off what Rizzo told us earlier in the season. Uh, if you remember in mid-May, you and I had conversations about Soto and whether or not he might be traded because the ownership situation. And Rizzo's response to this whole conversation at that time was, we're not trading Juan Soto. How can I make that more clear to everyone? I don't know. People aren't believing me. Well, he's done a 180 on that, which I think is a sign that behind the scenes, the ownership transfer is playing a major role in forcing this to a decision. Right. And that's, again, why I think I, I'm guessing that he'll go before Tuesday, because clarity of the ownership situation is critical here. They have to know as soon as possible. Is he with us or isn't he with us? And I think that will affect all of the ownership situation. So that's why I think it makes sense. And you're right. Mike Rizzo was telling the truth. I'm not trading Juan Soto until 440 million got turned down. Ownership situation changed. And now he has to speak uh, uh, differently on this because everything has changed in the last two months. Yep. And we don't know what his marching orders are, but I don't think there's any doubt that whatever those were in mid-May, those have altered. Uh, been altered. All right, let's look at the American League standings and how that might affect the the buyer-sell conversation of some of the teams. You have the Jays, the Mariners, and the Rays kind of separating themselves a little bit in the wild card race, uh, three, four games ahead of the group of Cleveland, Boston, Baltimore, and the White Sox. Take me through the thinking in your mind of those four teams, Cleveland, Boston, Baltimore, White Sox, is to be buyers or sellers. Well, I think the White Sox have to be buyers because they cannot have this kind of expectation, especially after last year, and they give up at the trade deadline when they can not only win a wild card, they can still win their division. So, and can I jump no in doubt- too? I'll jump in here on this too. They're in the most winnable division. Right. Like it's not like they're chasing a juggernaut. Right. There is zero chance they are giving up in any way on the season. They will add, not subtract. Not so sure about Cleveland, even though they've done exceptionally well getting to this point. I I see the Guardians being buyers, but not significant buyers. I see the Orioles not unloading any of those key players. Really? Uh, Mullins, I I don't think so. I think they owe it to their fans, and I think they're going to hang in there for a while because I don't think they're going to get enough for, say, Trey Mancini to justify trading him. That's what I think. The Red Sox, to me, are the fascinating team buster. They have had a horrendous last week, if not two weeks, and something has to be done quickly. I don't see how they can give up on this season either. But that, but Heim Bloom is not the kind of guy that's going to go out and unload all his prospects to get one player that might or might not get them into the playoffs. They're in big trouble right now. It'll be fascinating to see what happens, but I don't think they're going to sell off. I I still think they're the Red Sox and they have to buy, not sell. Just to double back on a couple of those, the Orioles, Jorge Lopez. If you're running the Orioles, he's your all-star, but as we know, relievers are like hot stocks. And when they have value, you typically move them on. If you're sitting and running the Orioles, what are you doing with him? Well, again, I say they don't trade too much, but uh, let's face it, with all due respect, as great as he's been this year, this is his only great year that he's had, and if they can get something for him, I think he's the kind of guy they move, but if they're going to win at all moving forward, you know, they need Santander and Hayes and and Mountcastle and Cedric Mullins. Those are the guys I'm saying they're not going to deal, nor should they, but if Lopez goes, I wouldn't be surprised. 
Yeah. And again, within the context of how relievers are viewed by teams, you look at a guy like David Bednar of the uh, Pirates, Joe Manaply of the Diamondbacks. To me, if you get a reliever that has value in a moment, you don't feel like you're in a position to contend, then you should take advantage of the value. Yes? Absolutely. And, you know, the Yankees just lost Michael King for the year. That guy's really good. They are really going to miss him. And they're not going to hold off the Astros. They're not going to beat the the Dodgers in the World Series unless they fortify now with the the injuries they've had. So, yes, I think think there will be a very strong bullpen market because there are so many bullpen arms that can make a difference. So what I'm hearing about the Red Sox is, is that they could be both buyers and sellers. Uh, J.D. Martinez is out in the trade market, and the perception is that he might be the most likely veteran to get moved, uh, in part because you know he's in the last year of his deal. Uh, he, this is probably the end of his time with the Red Sox here in the next few months. And uh, with the DH now used in both the National League and American League, you probably have teams that would be interested in taking him on. And you can fill a DH spot and still contend. You know, you could draw from guys they have internally, maybe Bobby Dahlbeck. Uh, moves over to the DH spot and they see if he can, uh, you know, find himself there. You trade for a better defensive first baseman. Uh, What I was hearing yesterday was, is that the Red Sox at the moment are not inclined to trade Sander Bogarts. Uh, A, they're still hanging in the edge of the race. And B, I think they want to keep that channel open to to potentially re-sign Sander moving forward. Yeah, look, Buster, they, they need to do whatever it takes to make the playoffs. But more than that, they have to keep Xander Bogart somehow, one way or another, and they have to keep Raphael Devers also. I personally don't see how they're going to keep both of them. I'm not sure they – I know they want to keep both of them, but that should be that should be their number one responsibility is making sure the left side of the infield doesn't go anywhere. So whatever deal they make at the trade deadline has to be with keeping Bogarts and Devers – Long-term, again, not going to be easy. I must say, I think among all the teams in baseball, I feel like we're going to learn more about the Red Sox in the next week than any other team, because if they did trade Bogarts, my question, you know, if I were a beat writer covering that team on a daily basis, would be to, you know, uh, to Heim Bloom, to Sam Kennedy, to John Henry, who do you, who are you going to pay? You didn't want to pay Mookie Betts. You traded him to the Dodgers. If they trade Xander Bogarts after giving him what, I mean, let's face it, was an embarrassing extension offer in the spring, you're not going to pay that guy who has stated he wants to stay with the team. Who are you going to pay? <laughs> and that, you know, the, the information we got from the Boston Globe, I think it was Alex Spear who wrote this story that in the negotiation with Devers, they used the Red Sox uh, used Matt Olson as a comp by offering uh, Devers the, you know, the extension that they offered him, which I personally think is ridiculous. Matt Olson's an all-star. Rafael Devers is one of the five best hitters in the game. I don't know how you could make that comparison, but if you're the Red Sox, you got to pay somebody if you're a big market team. Right. You got to play, pay Devers. He's 25 years old, Buster. Look at that track record. Look where that guy is going. How are you going to justify letting Rafael Devers go? Again, I, I would make him the number one priority, but Xander Bogarts has been a critical guy on that team. And you're right. Who are they going to pay? They have to pay both. Otherwise, the people in Boston are going to be pretty angry about this. And I can imagine what Dan Shaughnessy would write about that. Well, 
Tim, thanks for doing this. Congratulations. I was so proud of you over the weekend. I loved hearing the stories. Well, thank you, Buster. And uh, thanks for all you've done for me and everything during this process. I really appreciate it. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, reporter, producer for MLB.com. And Sarah, you were up in Cooperstown hanging out with Tim Kirchin, our good friend who we just talked to. He talked about how emotional it was for him over the weekend. Uh, from your perspective, what was it like to see uh, to Tim have that, that experience? Oh, my goodness. I mean, first of all, I want to give a huge shout out to ESPN production manager Kelly Carey who organized the whole thing, rented us a bus, brought us up there so we could get lunch with Tim before his big speech and the big day and everything. But, I mean, it was just incredible to get to see him. You know, we've just seen him in L.A. But to see him in this element, nervous as he always is, but so emotional, as you said, getting ready to get officially inducted into the Hall of Fame. I mean... It was, I can't believe that we got to be there and spend some time with him. And I'm just so, so elated for him. Yeah, it was really cool. Uh, tell me, uh, he, he, uh, he mentioned when he came in the room and he was surprised by the presence of all the folks. He said he got emotional. How about you? I, oh, my gosh. So when I see someone who I care about like that crying, I usually start crying. So I was kind of dabbing my eyes, grateful that everyone was looking at him and not me in that moment. But it was just so wonderful. And I don't know if he told this part of it, but he immediately went and grabbed his grandson. And, you know, that was kind of the peak of emotion to me. He's standing there, very emotional, seeing all of us surprised. And then, you know, he goes right for his grandson. That is exactly who he is as a family man, as an emotional person, as a wonderful yeah. person, as you know. Yeah, and I heard that story from uh, from Ravi and from Eduardo, and, and my sense was, and I didn't ask him about that, but my sense was in grabbing his, uh, his infant grandson, it was almost like uh, you hear about people with support dogs. I, I feel like that's what his grandson was in that moment for him, like this support person when he's dealing with all these emotions. Absolutely. You know, I was telling this story to Mandy Bell, who covers the Guardians for MLB.com, and that's how I portrayed it. So I 100% agree. It was kind of like he just needed somebody to squeeze and to feel in that moment as he was overcome with emotion. But I mean, a true Hall of Famer, as I said to him earlier in the week, he was a Hall of Famer long before this, but I'm so glad it is a Official, official now. All right, let's play the numbers game. Number three. Number three is 29. So speaking of someone who may end up in Cooperstown in his own right someday, Juan Soto on Sunday had three walks. That was his 29th career game with at least three walks. That tied Hall of Famer Ted Williams for the most games with at least three walks before turning 24 and Soto still has the entire rest of the season to add to that total and it's just incredible to see what he's done last night he had a triple a very funny triple if you saw it didn't go very far and a walk it was his 100th career game with at least an extra base hit and a walk 
the only guys with more of those before turning 24 are Ted Williams, Mel Ott, Jimmy Fox, Mike Trout, Mickey Mammal. And he may pass all of them except for uh, maybe Ott, Fox, and Williams before the end of the year. So he's been in the news a lot lately. This is why Juan Soto is that generational talent that you and everybody else keep referring to. Number two. Number two is eight. So Aaron Judge, speaking of guys having really stellar seasons, he had his eighth multi-homer game of the season over the weekend. That is already tied for the most multi-homer games of the season in Yankees history. And it's July. So the other guys to do it were Glaber Torres in 2019, Alex Rodriguez in 2007, Mickey Mantle in 1961, and Babe Ruth in 1927. And again, it is July. He has eight. He keeps hitting home runs, so he very likely could set that record for the Yankees. And the overall record is 11 multi-homer games in a season. Number one. Number one is one. So a very highly anticipated Subway Series is kicking off tonight with the second game, of course, tomorrow with you and the Sunday Baseball crew on ESPN tomorrow. Both the Yankees and Mets are outright first place in their divisions. This is the first time that these two teams will meet when they were both outright first place in their divisions ever. The April 2015 series where they met, where the Mets were in first place, but the Yankees were tied for first entering each game. That was also about 20 games into the season, so a very different kind of situation. And we have never seen a Mets-Yankees subway series like this, so it's going to be quite the energy in New York the next two days. So I've been doing SportsCenter uh, over the last two weeks, and I make a point every time I talk about Juan Soto, uh, just to give people context for the the Soto trade conversations, is I say he's going to be the most significant young player traded at age 23 since Babe Ruth. And there are definitely some followers on Twitter who go, that's ridiculous. What are you talking about? Uh, Sarah, you back me on that? Do you agree with me? A hundred percent. I mean, I think ultimately he will end up being the most significant player traded in a trade for actual money, right? The Babers trade was kind of a purchase, slightly different. It was a trade, but it was a little bit different. So I think we go back and we look at whatever players the Nationals get back, if they do indeed trade him, this is going to be incredibly historic like that. And we showed one of my favorite stats on Sunday Baseball, just as you guys were all talking about Juan Soto and the potential for his being traded. If you look at OPS plus, which is a great stat and normalizes for ballparks, eras, everything else, and tells you how good you were relative to the rest of major league baseball over your career. The only guys to be better than him through age 23 are hall of famers, and then Albert Pools and Mike Trout, who will be Hall of Famers. And he's currently sixth on that list. So he is just, it's hard to overstate how monumental of a trade this will be if it happens. 
a lot of followers have come back and said, hey, what about Miguel Cabrera? He was traded at age 24. Miguel Cabrera should, I want to make this clear, he should be unanimous selection for the Hall of Fame when his name pops up through his age 24 season. 24, he, his adjusted OPS plus was 147. Juan Soto's is 160. Like, and yeah. there's a gap there between Cabrera and Soto. And that's, I, I keep on trying to explain to me, like, this is huge that a player this grade that young is going to be traded. Absolutely. I mean, it's going to be really fascinating. And, you know, I'm excited to potentially see him on a contender. So we'll see what happens there. Yep, absolutely. Sarah, thanks for doing this. Thanks so much for having me. <clears throat> ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Allstate. ESPN Tournament Challenge is here. And guess what? I'm doing my bracket right now. Making picks, predicting upsets, winning my bracket group, and leaving my old life as a part-time voice actor behind. Hey, you never know. And if I can do it while recording this awesome commercial, you can too. Anyone can bracket. Download the ESPN Tournament Challenge app to play the number one bracket game. Presented by Capital One. So before Sunday Night Baseball, I was talking with Carl Ravitch and Eduardo Perez, who were in the room for Tim's Hall of Fame speech, and they were deeply moved by how well he did in that moment. Here's Tim's speech in its entirety. First off, I'm so sorry that you had to watch me dance in that video. The worst dancer ever. I'm more wooden than Pinocchio. Larry, thank you so much. Larry is an old baseball beat writer just like me, and those are among my favorite people in the whole world. It's such an honor to be here. This has been the most overwhelming, most overpowering experience of my life. I, I learned that I won this award. I was at the grocery store. I was at the self-service checkout aisle at the Harris Teeter. I was dragging a rotisserie chicken through the scanner when Jack O'Connell of the baseball writers called me and gave me the great news, and I started to cry right there at the Harris Teeter. I'm pretty sure that's the first in the history of this award. So the next morning at 8.30, Johnny Bench, Johnny Bench called me to congratulate me, and he said, congratulations, Tim. Welcome to the club. You're one of us now. Let's be clear, I'm not one of them, I'm not in their club, but the greatest catcher of all time called me to congratulate me. And then his voice went very soft, and he said poignantly, Tim, it's moments like this that take you back to Little League. And I was just about ready to cry again, and Johnny said, and let's face it, Tim, you're still small enough to fit into a Little League uniform. Thank you, Johnny. Johnny is here today. I can't believe it. There are Hall of Famers here today. Johnny, in 1975, caught 1,002 innings without a pass ball, and he came to see us today. Thank you so much. 
So many thanks to go around today, of course, to the Hall of Fame, to Jane and Josh and John. Thank you to the Baseball Writers Association, especially the Baltimore-Washington chapter, Dan Connolly, Mark Zuckerman, and Ken Rosenthal. Thank you to all of my baseball writer friends, Dan Shaughnessy, my mentor who taught me how to do this job, Peter Gammons, the greatest baseball writer of all time who taught all of us how to do this job, and Jason Stark, who taught me where to look for and to find great stats and notes. Thank you to all my editors at newspapers, Eddie Crane, Dave Smith, and Marty Kaiser. Thank you to all my editors and friends at Sports Illustrated, David Bauer, Steve Russian, and Steve Wolf. Thank you to all my editors and friends at ESPN, Greg Colley, Ed McGregor, Nick Petrasevich. And thank you to everyone at ESPN over the last 25 years, Scott Van Pelt, Buster Olney, and my dear friends, Carl Ravitch and Eduardo Perez. Congratulations to the Ford Frick winner, Jack Graney, and congratulations to the seven players who are going in the Hall of Fame tomorrow, including Jim Cott. The day I won this award, I got a text from Jim Cott saying, Tim, we are connected now connected forever to a player as great and a man as great as Jim Cott is the thrill of a lifetime for me. And of course, congratulations to David Ortiz, Big Poppy. I checked with the Elias Sports Bureau, which I do on virtually everything, and we've established that it is the largest disparity in size between a player being inducted and a writer being honored in the same year. I give up at least a foot and close to 200 pounds to David Ortiz. I have loved baseball all of my life, and that love for the game, not any sort of great talent, has carried my career. Baseball was the primary language spoken in my house growing up. My dad was a really good player, and he taught his three boys how to play the game, how to love the game, and he gave us a great feel for the game. My two brothers, Matt and Andy, played baseball at Catholic University. They're in the Hall of Fame there. And all three of us went to Walter Johnson High School, named after the greatest pitcher of all time. I worked for the school paper. It was called The Pitch. Ugh. I did some work for the yearbook. It was called The Windup. So I was a terrible writer in high school and one of my gym teachers once came up to me and said Tim that might be the worst story I've ever read in the school paper I hope you're not planning on making this your life's work <laughs> and amazingly miraculously I did there were a lot of bumps along the way January 1982 I'd just taken a job at the Dallas Morning News and we got a tip that Ron Meyer, the football coach at SMU, was going to be the next football coach of the New England Patriots. So this was a really big story in town. But all of our football writers were traveling, so I had to do the story. So I called him on the phone 50 times. Clearly, the phone was off the hook. So my boss said, you have to go to his house. I didn't know how to get to my house, let alone his house. And I didn't know Ron Meyer from Oscar Meyer. So... I, I get to the door, it's 10 o'clock at night. And remember, this is 1982. I was looking a lot younger then than I do today. And if it's possible, I was even smaller then than I am today. I knock on the door. He comes to the door and I say, hi, I'm Tim Kirkjian with the Dallas Morning News. And he goes, 
oh, okay, how much do we owe you this month? <laughs> so I didn't know whether to laugh or to cry, but I had to explain, I'm not actually the paper boy, I'm actually a real reporter at a real newspaper, and I've come to ask you some questions. So eventually I got that story in, but I said that night, this is the last time I'm chasing a college football coach around in the middle of the night, I need to get to baseball full time. And two months later, I was the beat guy covering the Texas Rangers for the Dallas Morning News. And the Rangers were terrible. They'd lost 11 games in a row in May. I staggered into manager Don Zimmer's office and I looked, he looked at me and he goes, what's wrong with you? And I said, Zim, I must tell you, covering this team isn't nearly as much fun as I thought it would be. And he said, and I'm quoting here, he said, ah, quit complaining, look at yourself. You're young, you're good looking, you got your whole life in front of you. He said, look at me, I'm old, I'm fat, I'm bald, I'm ugly, I got a plate in my head, and I've got this team to manage. I'm the one with all the worries, so quit complaining and recognize how lucky you are to be covering Major League Baseball every day. And as always, Zim was right. It was a privilege to cover the game 40 years ago, and now 40 years later, it is still a privilege. Baseball is the greatest game. It's the best game of all time. It's the hardest game in the world to play. It is a beautiful game, and the number of people I have met in this game over the years who will be my friends for the rest of my life, including Rick Vaughn and Rich Donnelly and Mike Toomey, and the players that I have met over the years who have given me so much to write about. Five years ago, Eduardo Perez, Dave Fleming and I were doing a game in Atlanta, and Hank Aaron came in the booth. Hank Aaron sat next to us for four innings. I sat next to Hank Aaron for an hour and a half. He was so funny. He was so charming. His recall was unbelievable. I was so captivated that I stopped keeping score of a game I was covering. I've never done that before because I couldn't take my eyes off of Hank Aaron. So when that magical night was over, I looked on Twitter. Never a good idea to check Twitter after a game. And some guy wrote in and he said, if anyone ever looks at you the way that Tim Kirkchen looked at Hank Aaron tonight, you should marry that person. <laughs> so I get to write all these stories and collect all these stories because of the support of my family, which allowed me to travel and to get my work done. It starts with my brother, Matt, my best friend. He's 11 months older than me, born in the same year. My brother, Matt, was a great baseball player at Catholic University. And now he has ALS. But let me tell you what baseball does for its players. Four months after his diagnosis, Ross Natoli, the baseball coach at Catholic University, asked him to throw out the ceremonial first pitch at their only fall road date of the season. It was a doubleheader at Mount St. Mary's. My brother had a major league throwing arm, but because of his ALS, he had to learn how to throw a ball differently. And we played catch in the front yard, and typically, he figured it out. When we got to the field, Coach Natoli gave him a replica Catholic University jersey with M. Kirkchen two on the back. That's the number he wore at CU for four years. 
And then he went to the mound and predictably threw an athletic strike to the plate. He looked to his right, and his immediate family were all dressed in Catholic University jerseys with M. Kirkjian two on the back. Then he looked further to his right, and all 47 players on the Catholic University team were wearing jerseys that said M. Kirkjian two on the back. And that's the first time I'd seen my brother cry since this ordeal began. But this is what happens in baseball. Catholic U won a doubleheader that day. This is how the game celebrates and honors its players. Thank you, Coach Natoli, for everything that you've done for my brother. And thank you to Catholic University for everything you've done for our family for the last 50 years. My brother Andy is one of the great players in the history of Catholic University. Power hitting catcher, held all the RBI and home run records for years. So the configuration of the old CU Stadium was odd because they had to share the field with the football team. So if you hit a ball into the right field stands, it was a double. If you hit it over the right field stands, it was a home run. So my parents went to every game. I still don't know how they did that, but my mom, God bless her, got to a game late once, and she's standing on the dividing line between the double and the home run. And Andy hits a ball that hits her right in the shoulder and caroms into the doubles area. So now the umpires have to get together, and they decide, well, if it hadn't hit that lady, who happened to be the mother of the guy who hit it, it would have been a home run. So eventually they gave him a homer, and then my dad went to my mom. My dad loved my mom more than anything. And once he realized her shoulder was okay, he looked at her and he said, what are you trying to do? You almost cost the kid a home run. <laughs> then of course, there's the home team, starting with my wife, Kathy. All the arrangements for this weekend, the parties, the hats, t-shirts, the goodie bags, everything she put together, much like she's arranged everything in our house and our life for the last 38 years. And believe me, it has not been easy being married to a baseball dork like me. I cut out... <laughs> I cut out every box score of every major league game for 20 years and taped them in my notebooks like I was seven years old. And I will tell you, I never missed a day. And I think we can all agree that's a streak way more impressive than anything put together by Cal Ripken Jr. <laughs> So one night at 11.45, I realized, oh my gosh, I forgot to do my box score book. And I woke up, ran into my office, clipped him out, came back to bed, and Kathy looked at me like, how could I have married such an unfathomable geek? Thank you, honey, for putting up with me all these years. I love you. Our daughter, Kelly also had a lot to do with the arrangements. Kelly is a brilliant designer, she's a brilliant artist, and she is the best shooter in the room. Kelly Kirkjian's senior year in high school, she made 54 out of 56 free throws. Thank you, Kelly. For giving old dad that, thank you for everything you've given me, but mostly, Thank you to you and Mark for giving us our grandson, Carson, the greatest little boy in the world. Hi, Car Car. It's Pop Pop. 
the boy is awake. <laughs> Thank you to our son, Jeff, and his beautiful wife, Emily. Jeff is a radio talk show host in Philadelphia. He is so much more talented than me. He is so much smarter than me. He plays the piano. He sang the national anthem and God Bless America at Progressive Field. He was the star of all the school plays in high school. And I think the highlight of my entire career was last year at the celebrity softball game. Jeffrey was the play-by-play -play guy, and I was his color analyst. And I sat next to him for two hours and watched him work. It was breathtaking. Thank you, Jeff. My mom, the aptly named Joy, was the greatest mom and the greatest grandmother of all time. My dad gave us a love for baseball. My mom gave us a love for words. My mom was a great writer. Nobody wrote a better Christmas letter than my mother. And she was a good athlete, and she was a tough little lady. <laughs> so once she got a little tired of hearing what a great athlete my dad was, so she said, I can beat you in a race right now. So at age 55, she went out into the court and raced my dad across the court and just dusted him. That's my mother. My dad, of course, is my all-time hero, greatest dad, greatest grandfather of all time. He taught me to love the game. He was also a PhD in undergrad MIT. So my love of statistics comes from my father. I can't even tell you how many times we sat around on the couch with a baseball encyclopedia in our laps and he would show me stats about Williams and DiMaggio, stats that I still use today. And my dad was a funny little man too. He routinely would throw a pillow down into the middle of the rec room and show his three boys how to make the double play. Here's where you put your feet. Here's where you put your hands. You gotta catch it here. You gotta throw from down here to make that guy slide. And he would always complete the double play by throwing the ball into the couch. Well, once he threw it a little bit too high and he broke the French door window and he looked at me as youngest son and said, Tim, tell mom that you did it and I'll get you off easy. I'll finish, you, I'll finish with this, um, a little secret. Every night that I write or I do a game or I do a show, I just look up at the sky and I say a little thank you to my mom and dad. I say thank you, Ned and Pop. I love you. This is for you. And today, this award, all of this, Ned and Pop, this is for you. Thank you. Bleacher Tweets. All righty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a Tuesday. Tangler at NDen42 writes in, with the Nats take Bader, Yepes, Liberator, Burleson, McGreevy for Soto. It's not worth it for the cards to give up Walker, Win or Herrera, but they'd still get five solid guys. Yeah, I got to tell you, like covering the Soto talks are, it's just unusual because you don't really know what's going on in the mind of Mike Rizzo, the general manager of the Nationals. As I talked about on SportsCenter, uh, you know, most of the time when, when these conversations take place, the teams will cast a wide net and they'll circle back with teams. And so we can all assess which prospects might be better than the others. But in Rizzo's case, he targets specific prospects. And so is that the is that a group that could get it done on paper? Maybe. 
but only Mike Rizzo knows exactly what he's looking for. Hmm. Archie Tatis Jr. at Win for Gwyn writes in, when a team wants to trade for a player, do they ever or are they allowed to reach out to the player or representative to gauge interest in playing for that team? If a player hated a city team, wouldn't that team want to know before dealing for him? The rule is you're not allowed to reach out to the player. Yes, it happens. <laughs> Tampering! <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, it would be tampering, and I don't think that uh, those conversations are made directly. I don't think anybody's leaving a paper trail, but you know, uh, the call could go to a player's agent, and, and it could be, "Hey, um, if you happen to have a Hall of Fame caliber player who's twenty three years old, do you think that player might be interested in playing for a big market team, say in Los Angeles or New York or whatever?" You can have those theoretical conversations. I've heard of. And I actually written stories about this when I covered the Yankees. There were side deals that were against baseball rules made, for example, with Chuck Knobloch. Before he got traded, there was an agreement that they would give him a two-year extension. Uh, and those things happen all the time. Are you interested in $500 million? Hmm, perhaps that could be something right, he's interested exactly. in. <laughs> Mitchell at Tigers of Detroit writes in, Tony Gonsolin and Tyler Anderson are combined 21-1 and one this year. Almost unfair considering the amount of other talent that makes up their roster. Who, in your opinion, is best at finding diamonds in the rough? Yeah, the Dodgers are really good at it. Uh, the Yankees have gotten better at it in the last five or six years, but there's no doubt. I think the, the champion would be the Tampa Bay Rays. That's part of the reason why so many of their folks are rated every year uh, by other teams with front office hires because the Rays clearly have an ability to identify talent. By the way, you know, that, that that was the perception of the Astros as well, where it always felt like pitchers would go to Houston and suddenly ascend. But now everyone is thinking back on that and said, hmm, how much of that was spider tech? <laughs> <laughs> Pat Johnston at the Melting Pat writes in, I'm not one of them, but some Phillies fans are already calling Castellanos' contract a bust in year one of five. This is a small sample and he'll turn it around. Right, right. Yeah, and there was actually uh, a confrontation, and I don't know if I would use that word, but that's how it was, it was headlined, a confrontation between Castellanos and veteran Phillies reporter Jim Salisbury. Give a listen to that. Did you uh, hear the blues there when you struck out and they played the game there? No, man, I lost my hearing. <laughs> so you didn't hear it? Come on, man, that's a stupid question. Why is that a stupid question? Can anybody else answer that for him? Anybody? I mean, that's a stupid question. It's not a stupid question. If it's a stupid question, you should be equipped to answer it. All right, all right, I did answer it. All right, all right. The answer we should be able to answer it. We, we got the answer. That doesn't mean that I can't say that it's a stupid question. It wasn't a stupid question. It's a legit question. question. If I heard the booze, is, 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 that's a rhetorical question. Of course it's a stupid question. Did you hear the booze? That's a stupid question. We got the answer. We're good. Thanks, guys. We're then close. you should be able to handle a stupid question. I did. Yeah, so Kevin Gregg, the Veterans Media Relations Director for the Phillies, you heard him step in and, and end that. Because uh, he was getting a little contentious, I, I think Castellanos would come around. I've always thought of him as being an absolutely a pure hitter. Uh, he's known as being a really intense player, and I'm sure this is weighing on him. Nick Lurkins at Banker DJ Nick writes, "I love the Cardinal way, but if the front office doesn't do something quote unquote sexy to show we need Arenado to stay, then what am I to think?" Hmm. Um, we need. Sorry, dude. I'm, I'm like looking at this question, really diving. What does he mean, Arenado State? Arenado signed to a long-term deal. Oh, let's scratch it. Yeah, my fault. I no, should have. No, it's okay. 
Andrew Campbell at Real Camp Drew is up next. Hey, Buster, if Matt Carpenter gets north of 25 home runs by the time the season is over, does he win comeback player of the year? Yeah, Andrew, I haven't gotten into uh, it specifically, uh, like looking at the list of candidates, but that makes complete sense given what he's doing. Last one, Taylor Gang, Taylor Welch at Taylor mm, WTKD. Welch writes in, what pitcher or utility player to play center field? Uh, could the Phillies look to trade before the deadline? I've heard Noah Syndergaard as an option. Yeah, and Dave Dombrowski, head of baseball operations at Philly, spoke to the reporters last night. Uh, a lot of his decision-making going into the deadline, he indicated, is around the, the health of Zach Eflin. Uh, if they feel like Eflin's not going to be available, then maybe the focus would be on starting pitching. And yes, given the collapse of the Angels, uh, trading for Syndergaard would make sense. Alrighty, that does it for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter while you're watching games tonight. We will be back tomorrow. That's it for today. My thanks to Tim, Sarah, Sarah, Terrence, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day.